welcome to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky. I'm your host, Scott Lane, and in this podcast, I will bring you a fresh perspective on all things ESG. I'm joined by experts who will provide a clear step-by-step path for companies to integrate ESG at every level and conversations that will challenge you to abandon your current thinking and use the principles of ESG to drive business performance, build value for customers, and protect the community and the planet. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky. I'm Graham Brown. I'm going to be introducing you to the podcast today, as well as your host for this series, for this journey into the world of ESG. And starting off today, asking the question, what makes a great company? And defining ESG for those of you listeners who are involved in this space and want a bit more clarity, because it can be confusing. Before I introduce today's host, let me give you some background context to this. Just this week, some news. Let's share some of the news in the world of ESG. Well, if you're watching the news, you'll see there's a heat apocalypse in Europe right now, which is right front and center, undeniable that it's happening. We also saw global brand Mondelez release its modern day slavery report detailing supply chain transactions and fairness in its supply of cocoa from farm to food outlets. And also, if you've been watching the news in the US, 124,000 documents disclosed by whistleblower Mark McGann, Uber's former chief lobbyist for Europe, detailed how Uber flouted laws, duped police exploited all kinds of grey areas in government lobbying, in aggressively building its global empire. It's difficult being a leader today. There is so much transparency that it's hard to even focus, I guess, on the day job of running and growing a business. All of this we have to bring back to the world of ESG and how that fits in. And maybe not look at ESG as a tax, but as an opportunity to grow businesses and connect with consumers in an engaging way. To help us understand this space, I'm joined by Scott Lane, founder and CEO of Speaky. He's going to help us understand ESG in the context of what makes great companies. But also today, we are going to walk through and look at how you, if you're involved in this space as a listener, can start putting some plans in action and creating behavioral change in your organization and creating a great company. Scott, welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Graham. Great to be here. It's great to have you here. It's difficult, isn't it, being a leader in the context of all this transparency. I imagine the kind of conversations that you're having now are with CEOs, CFOs, C-suite, who are probably don't have the kind of clarity that maybe they did years ago in running a business. Now it seems to they have to focus on so many different things, especially when it comes to ESG. What are the kind of conversations that you're having with that level of leadership? Well, you're right. I think the first observation is that leaders of companies in the last 10 to 20 years have really been focused on shareholder value, You know, producing an organization that's got profit, that's got value to investors. And I think what we've seen over the last 10 years is that the significant shift to saying there's more stakeholders to consider. There's stakeholders in the employees, there's stakeholders in suppliers and partners. And probably in the last, I think, five to 10 years, the most significant stakeholder has been the planet. You know, there's been a silent stakeholder 
that is now speaking up and uh, part of the podcast is about hearing all voices and one of those voices is the planet. And so as leaders now, we need to think about our organizations quite differently to what we did 10 to 20 years ago. Not only are we looking at shareholder value, but we're looking at all those other stakeholders and we're trying to prove value to them as well. So it requires a different type of leadership and it requires a different set of leaders to truly lead companies in this new era. Before we get on to the how-to piece, let's maybe put this into context. Some numbers. I'm going to share with the listeners today some data that is published on ESG, and, and you'll help us understand exactly what ESG is today, because it's not just, there's a lot of focus on the E part, isn't there, of the ESG. It tends to get the headlines. But let's go there. Let's talk about some of the data. Barclays, according to Barclays, $84 trillion is under asset owner management of people who've committed themselves to net zero carbon initiatives. That's $84 trillion. It's also investment trends. A PwC recently wrote in a report this month that 72% of European asset managers were willing to halt all non-ESG product launches. That's pretty significant. That's the behavioral cultural change that we've seen in the last 10 years. And then from the consumer side as well, Nine in 10 women investors surveyed by UBS said that they had a deeper commitment than ever before to leading a more purposeful, intentional life and making a positive difference in the world. And they said they would apply that to the investment decisions that they made in the companies that they backed. Yet, Scott, against all of this, we have a frustration. We have influencers in the market, such as Elon Musk who very recently said that ESG doesn't make any sense. And he said, quote, it has been weaponized by phony social justice warriors. So where do we stand in this? Because those are two very strong pieces of evidence. On the one hand, you've got the data. And on the other hand, you've got Elon Musk, who is extremely influential in the business community. If you're listening, you're probably a little bit confused what this all means. Scott, help us out. Well, it's a, it's a pretty difficult question, but let me try and explain it. You're talking really about two different pieces right there. You've got a foundational piece of ESG, which started maybe five to seven years ago. And that focus was really about financial products and financial services. So it was focused on how, as investors, should we invest into essentially green industries or companies or industries that are promoting climate neutrality. And that's kind of where ESG started. And at its most basic level, that was something that was quite significant. It was a good achievement. It was a good initiative. It was something that was valued. The problem with it is that the consumers changed. And what you've described, you know, the individual female investor who's making an investment or the person that's walking into a store and making a decision whether they buy a pair of sneakers from one store versus another, or you're talking about a particular supplier who's looking to supply something from a war zone. Or What's happened is that you're now dealing with a different type of consumer, a different type of company, who are looking much more broader than just energy or sustainability on net zero. And so those two things that you described work together, but right now they're challenged. And they're challenged because the traditional definition of ESG is very heavily focused on E. 
And I think the world is saying to people, it's not all about the E. Actually, it's about S and G as well. And there's some significant elements of S and G that the consumers are really focused on. And so whilst the banks might be really focused on investing from a green climate perspective, the average consumer is really focused on social and governance. And so the two things that you describe can work together, but there's no fear at all in saying from my perspective that, you know, Elon Musk has a point. Creating a form of ESG that is purely based on, you know, environmental issues is missing the point. It's missing the S and the G, and there's a really significant story behind that. Mm. Do you think that companies are lagging behind the consumer in this context? I mean, you're saying that they've caught up with the E part, but S and G? Are they there? The challenge is when we look at ESG, it's such a 40,000-foot concept. And when we look at environmental and social governance, most people have never really stood back and thought, well, what does that mean You know, at the street level? So if you go from 40,000-foot view down to the street level, what does it actually mean? And so what is E, what is S, and what is G? And you know, one of the foundations of ESG is being able to break it down and say to companies, you know, E is made up of these elements, S is made up of these elements, and G is made up of these elements. And so looking at it at a 40,000 foot level is something that's very challenging. But unfortunately, when you look at it at the 40,000 foot level, it's too complex and too broad and too difficult for people to really follow and understand. So it's really an element of breaking it down to its constituent parts and then looking at each of those and saying, how can we do better on each of these elements, you know, vis-a-vis each of our companies and each of our stakeholders? And how can we do better at doing that? And that's, to me, where you know, we've gone wrong in the past and where I think we've got a great opportunity of fixing it in the future. Well, I'm hoping that we can do that today, that we can map that out and go into those elements and understand it a bit better. Hopefully by the end of the podcast, have a clearer road ahead in terms of what we need to do, even if it's small steps that we can take now. It seems as well, just going back to the Musk comment, there was a lot of conversation about this, rightly so, because when you have an influential business leader talking about ESG, people are going to listen. And a good degree of that conversation focused on unpacking and understanding the ratings of ESG. I'm curious to hear your thoughts of that because there was an article written in Fortune and a an ESG expert and author had said that Musk needed to understand the ratings like you would understand figure skating, that you could subjectively give scores to the companies for different kind of actions or strategies. And there was a heavy focus on the ratings here, that everything was where it had started in the financial instrument space in giving companies ratings. And it seemed that all the conversation was focused around that. Are we in the right space with that? Should we be heavily focused on ratings when it comes to ESG? I don't think we are in the right space. In fact, I think we've gone down a, a very odd track. And let me explain why. When, when we first started looking at a ratings industry, we were looking at financial ratings. And you know the classic credit score for both companies and financial instruments. Now, a credit score is a form of a rating system. It's a scoring system that's developed based on a set of practices. And the good thing about credit scores is that 
it's essentially mathematics. You can look at the performance, you can look at ROI, return on equity, you know, income, profit. You know, there's a number of factors that you can identify and you can measure. And there's fantastic standards out there. You know, we're all familiar with GAP or IFRS and other standards around the world for counting that give us a baseline. And so it's very easy to create a credit score for an organization. So now let's look at ESG. You've got a very broad topic that is incredibly difficult to try and build a scoring mechanism on. It, you know, frankly, at a 40,000-foot level, it's, I think it's impossible to do that. But nevertheless, that's where we've ended up. And so it's not surprising that it's open to a lot of challenge and it's open to a lot of dialogue as to whether it's actually useful, whether it's accurate, whether or not the considerations that go into that rating for ESG are actually the right considerations. And I think that it's changed. I, I don't think that they are the right considerations. And I think it's too complex and too broad to build a large ESG rating for one company. I think it's just, it's far more complicated than the credit world and building a financial rating, mostly because ESG is behavioral. And it's very tough to measure behaviors. And it's very tough to measure the way that companies react to some of these ESG topics and the way that they're seen by their stakeholders and the change management and behavioral change that needs to happen in order to get better at some of these elements in ESG. And unfortunately, the rating systems don't really measure that. They're not able to calculate to that level of degree the specificity of a rating that would actually add value. So going back to the Elon Musk comment, in its current form, you know, the ESG ratings that try to leverage a financial ratings or a credit rating concept and apply it to ESG, yeah, I don't think it's adding us any value. I don't think it's contributing at all to helping us understand where companies are at when it comes to ESG. Now you've done 25 years in helping these organizations build compliance program. When you're talking about behavioral change or change management, Scott, you must be a patient man. You've seen the wide range of human behavior, the good and the bad, I'm sure, and especially when it comes to organizations. Why aren't we more proactive? What's holding people back? You know, I see these comments like Elon Musk, and I think that gives fuel to the people who are procrastinating, or maybe, you know, it gives them an excuse not to do anything. When it comes to organizations, I know it's a very sweeping statement. In 25 years, there's a lot to condense down into a few minutes. But if you could do that, summarize it, why don't people change? Why knowing what we know right in front of us about ESG and the numbers and what happens if we don't change? Why isn't it happening? Well, the very simple answer is, you know, what's in it for me? People typically change when they see value, when they see value in the change position. So if it's going to help them, it's going to impact them, it's going to make them more stable or it's going to make them you know, more financially stable or it's going to help their image or their profile, their reputation, or it may help them either financially or in a status area, then typically people will gravitate towards that change environment. So I think what's happened is there's been a disconnect between people saying, well, what's in it for me? You know, I can see that this is is good for the environment 
And I, I get that and I can see climate change and I think generally speaking, most people accept that. But I, I still think there's a what's in it for me element. And I'm not sure that we've done a good enough job in showing what's in it for me. And that's because I think we've looked at it too broadly. And, you know, people are motivated by different things. Some people are motivated by money. Some people are motivated by success, by power, by position. You know, there's a number of different motivators that motivate people to behave differently. And I think when it comes to some of these ESG topics, I don't think organizations have done enough work to take people along that journey and to help look at how do they change behaviors and what are the incentives and the disincentives that we need to do to bring along those people on that journey so that they can get the buy-in that they need in order to show a better way forward. And I think we've really lacked that. You know, we've assumed that everyone just gets it and that they should just jump on the bus and, and it'll be fine. And I think what we've seen right now is that actually that's not the case. You know, it's far more complex. And, you know, my challenge to companies is to stand back a bit and say, well, firstly, if we want to tackle ESG, we kind of need to define what ESG means. You know, what, what does that mean to us? It's a very big word, environmental social governance. What does it mean to our company? And what are the elements of it that apply to us? You know, and once we've worked that out, what are the ones that we do really well at? And what are the ones that we don't do so well and we need to focus on? And then, you know, standing back and saying, you know, basic questions like, where do we want to be on this topic? You know, to give you an example, you, you can take an element of, of uh, let's say, diversity and inclusion, which would be a classic section within the, the S in ESG. And most companies would understand that diversity and inclusion is a value to their business. I think most people would accept that. I think what's challenging for a lot of companies is to say, well, let's dig deeper. Where are we now and where do we want to get to? And what's the path, both from a policy, procedure, you know, adoption type process, training, communications, awareness, monitoring and measuring? But how do we get the people there? You know, how do we change our practices? How do we move the way that some of our teams may have acted in the past? How do we get them to act differently? You know, how do we get them to change their behavior around the way that they look at diversity or inclusion or you know, racial equality or, or gender equality? You know, how do we get people to think differently? And then how do we embed that across the company so that we start to change the culture of the organization? You know, when you look at that one issue, I think there's around 19 or 20 issues within ESG. So going back to your question, why do companies sometimes struggle with it? It's a lot of work. Superficially, it's very simple. But at a deep level where you're actually going to make change and have an impact and drive behaviors, yeah, you need to go back down to the you know street level. You can't do it from 40,000 foot. You need to go back to the street level and you need to build programs and you need to structure them with clear goals, clear objectives, clear opportunities for improvement, monitoring, measuring, policies, procedures, training, awareness, communication. You need to build behavioral change. You need to do all of those areas for it to be effective. Can we go there then? There's a lot that you've brought up, Scott. If we can break that down for the listeners. What's in it for me? So 
what is the impact of ESG on business performance? Let's talk about that. Then breaking ESG down into the component factors and defining them. You know, it's not just the E part, but there are many factors within ESG that once you start defining it, you get a better understanding of how to actually action it. And then also the programs that you talk about, what are those steps towards positive behavioral change? If we can do that in the podcast, I think that's going to be a lot covered. And obviously during this podcast and the series, we're going to be diving into each of those areas in a bit more focus, specifically looking at each of these areas, particularly within the ESG part and those sub-factors as well. Let's start with the drivers though. What's in it for me? Well, that is the place to start. And what's in it for me requires a first question, which is, well, who is me? So when we assess that, we've got to look at from what perspective am I looking at what's in it for me? Am I an employee? Am I a partner? Am I a supplier? Am I an investor? Am I an executive? Am I a board member? Or am I that silent stakeholder that we are now calling the planet? You know, what perspective am I looking at the value to me? So let's use employee as an example because it's the one that most people can easily uh, adopt to. So if we look at it from a, an employee perspective, you know, what's in it for me, for my organization to have a strong ESG stance? So then the question is, well, what do we mean by ESG? And what are the things in ESG that would impact me as an employee? It's a fair question. And so what we've done poorly on as an industry and as a, as a business community is to say and document clearly, well, what is ESG? And so let me give you some examples. You know, ESG, from an environmental perspective, it's relatively easy. Most people get the E in ESG. It's about climate stability, waste management, natural resources. You know, it's about how we use energy. You know, it's, it's all about protecting and developing the environment in which we live in. So the E piece is relatively simple. Now, to the employee, those things are good. It's great to have uh, my company contributing towards net zero. It's great that my company is considering waste management. It's great that my company is thinking about ways to use energy differently. You know, they're good things and they're great things for the planet. But to me personally, as an employee, you know, I'm not going to make any more money. I'm not going to get a bigger bonus. You know, those things are good to have and it's great. But to me personally, when I come into work every day, those things in the E category are—they're not going to—they're going to impact me directly, but frankly, they're going to impact generationally more directly. So when you look at the next level and you say, "Well, let's look at S," you know, what, what's social all about? You know, what what does that mean? Social can look at the way the organization works, so the way that we manage people, and that can be everything from: Do we have a fair workplace? Do we have a place that is free from bullying, from harassment, from discrimination? Are we working in an environment which respects our gender and respects our race? Is it a fair environment? Is it an environment where the policies and the processes that are in the company around people are fair? Are they reasonable? Are they sensible? Do they protect society? Do we contribute to our local communities? 
you know, are we working in a place which our suppliers, when they procure products from around the world, are we thinking about where our suppliers come from? Are we looking at human trafficking or are we looking at modern day slavery? Are we thinking about the way which we buy products around the world and the impact we have on society? You know, things like health and safety or you know, diversity and the value change, you know, they're all social elements. So if you stand back and say, well, do those things affect an employee? And the answer is, yeah, very much so. I mean, the place which you work, the people that you work with, the standards that they adopt of management or the standards that they have around equality and diversion, yeah, they impact me every day. I mean, frankly, if they're not strong, I'm not going to come to work. I'm not going to consider working in a place that has a terrible reputation or has really poor standards around equality or diversity. I don't want to work in those environments. So that's a place where it very directly impacts an employee. So when you consider what's in it for me as an employee, the S is really direct. It really hits you. It affects the way in which you work. It affects whether you want to work. It affects how you get paid. It affects the way you work with your co-workers. And so the S insofar as employees, very, very strict. So let's talk about G. So governance is a very broad topic. And it's basically what it covers is everything from how is the organization run? How do we run this company? How does the board work? How does management work? How do we manage risk across the organization? Are we a scary risk-taking company that's putting everything at risk all the time and potentially making decisions that would impact the business and impact put the business at risk? Are we involved in bribery and corruption? Are we involved in you know bribing or are we involved in buying off governments to win businesses around to win business around the world? Are we involved in poor ethics and poor integrity? You know, that reputational element of you know, how do we conduct ourselves as a company? Now, how does that affect an employee? And the answer is pretty strongly, actually, because most employees don't want to work for an organization that is lacking in integrity, lacking in ethics, lacking in respect, has a terrible reputation that only wins business because they bribe people to win that business. Or an organization that doesn't support whistleblowing, or an organization that when you do complain or you do give feedback, you get sacked. You get removed because you made things difficult for the organization. People don't want to work in that kind of environment. So from a governance perspective, it really touches the employee directly because people just don't want to work in badly run organizations where they they see time and time, you know, managers or executives doing things that are just lacking in integrity or putting themselves first or there's a conflict of interest or there's some sort of governance issue or bribery or corruption or... No one wants to work for an organization that's like that. So to stand back and look at where we need to be, we need to look at what's in it for me. And the me is one of those stakeholders. And the example I chose was the employee. So you need to stand back and say, what's in it for the employee to have a company that takes the environment seriously? What's in it for the employee for a company that takes social and its social license seriously? And what's in it for the employee for a company that takes governance seriously? 
And then if you look at it from that perspective, and you do that not only for employees, but you do that for suppliers and partners and investors and management, if you do that from each of those stakeholders, then your perspective across each of them will be a lot different. And secondly, collectively, will give you a very clear vision of where you need to be to really get great at ESG. So that's what ESG, from what's in it for me perspective, is all about. The challenge for most companies is what's next? You know, how do we now take that concept and how do we get better at it? You know, how do we embed it into our business so that we can turn that value, not only for the shareholder, but we can turn it to the employee, to the partner, to the supplier, to the community, and ultimately to the planet. This is where we need to map ESG and lay it out for people and understand it a bit better. If you think about the what's in it for me part, Scott, just for the employees, they're all going to care about things differently. Like some may care about the supply chain and where they source goods more than others can care about diversity. And it's the same with consumers as well. That makes it very complicated, doesn't it? Even going back to the two examples at the beginning where we had Uber and Mondelez, for example, you know, very different issues. And it just goes to show, but issues that may affect all kinds of businesses that may not have those processes or cultural change in place. So if we can map that out, Scott, where do we start? We kind of know what ESG is, but can we break this down? If I'm an employee or even I'm a board member and I need to know, I'm probably going to be in part driven by a little bit of fear that you know, I don't want to be that company that makes it to the Twitter headlines. But at the same time, acutely aware that there's a very strong business case for ESG in hiring, retention, profitability as well. So there is a benefit here to the business, a very strong one. There's lots of things to focus on here. Where do I start? If I'm a C-suite, what do I do? Do I sit down with a piece of paper and map this out and just write down what ESG is? Or I'm confused. I need to know what the natural next steps are. It's a good question. And you know, I think we can probably move on from a piece of paper to a whiteboard. But yes, that is a great strategy. Defining what ESG actually means is one of the first steps which I talk to companies about. You know, Speaky has developed a model where we've defined 19 different risk areas, some of which I've already talked about, that sit under that heading of ESG. Now, for some companies, they might say that there's 10. Some companies might say there's 25. You know, that, that's entirely up to them and their business and their industries and the markets in which they operate. But the first step is exactly as you described. It's standing back and saying, well, what does ESG mean to us? You know, how do we define it in those categories? And is it our speaky model, for example, uses 19 risk areas. These are the 19 areas that we say are part of our ESG platform. And then for a lot of companies, it's a very simple process of looking at each of those areas, standing back and saying, firstly, well, where are we at with each of these 19 areas? What's our current status? You know, How well do we do? at this point. So let's pick an issue of, let's say, human rights and modern-day slavery. Where do we sit on that topic? What do we do? What should we be doing? If we were to define our end state or best practices or you know a global important 
practices around modern day slavery. Well, what does that look like? And where do we sit right now? And that assessment is something that I would challenge every company to do across each of those 19 areas and really challenge themselves as to say, where are we right now? And also documenting, where do we want to get to? Where do we see ourselves as leaders? And do we need to be leaders in each of those areas? Or based on our industry and our risk profile and our the type of business, the countries we operate in, you know, are some areas more important than others? And how do we prioritize doing this process? But broadly speaking, companies need to be able to look at where they're at, document where they're at, document where they want to get to, and then they need to build a program to get from A to B. And that program is going to be broadly a classic compliance program. You know, it has a series of buy-in from leadership and management and commitment from employees. It's about setting a standard, setting a set of requirements, a set of values, their policies, a set of procedures, some controls, training people, giving them awareness, making them sure they understand it, looking at the behavioral change element, and then making sure that when we implement the systems or whatever it is that we're going to do to, in my example, deal with modern-day slavery risks, how do we know that it's working? Have we tested it? Have we reviewed it? Have we checked it? I mean, how do we measure it? Did we have a goal and are we achieving it? Because just because we don't know something doesn't mean that it's not happening. It may not have been brought to our attention yet. So how do we score ourselves and how do we think that we understand how we're doing? We need to build that into the system so that we can monitor and measure it. And then we need to stand back and improve it. And so companies need to really focus on thinking differently about these areas and building programs that are effective to improve them from where they are now to where they need to be from a priority perspective and also from their industry and their business and their geographic locations. You know, what is best practices? We won't go into the... 19 areas of risk as you define them, because we'll touch upon some of those in the podcast, in this series. But if anybody wants to know more in depth, we'll give you Scott's details if you want to make contact. And obviously you've got a lot of educational material out there as well, which people can access, but we don't have enough time to go into those 19 areas and do them justice. So we'll just focus on a few of them today. If I was a leader in a business And let's say, you know, I'm involved in sourcing products from developing countries. We talked about modern day slavery. We talked about Mondelez, for example. I'm thinking now, what does this mean to me? Does it mean I have to have a view on this as a leader? Do I have to go public? I recently saw data from Edelman on their thought leadership survey. And they said that 68% of employees expect CEOs to speak out. Now, you can imagine that having to speak out is something that you have to do very carefully about this. You need to have good compliance and you need to know what you're talking about. And it needs to be authentic. You can't just say it without actually doing this as well, which is the challenge, isn't it? And there's a lot of misrepresenting going on in this space. I'm thinking, what does this, you talk about this end state. Does this mean that I have to go in the public space and talk about my supply chain or do I publish a report or what are the kind of manifestations or the outputs of these programs? How does that actually look in an end state? Well, it's a good question. I think 
When you look at your environmental and social governance, there is tremendous value to the organizations and to its stakeholders in transparency. So seeing how the company is doing. And, you know, I personally like to deal with companies that take this seriously, that are thinking about their environmental risks, that are fair to their people, that are thinking about their supply chain. You know, I'm, I make decisions on where I will spend my time or my money based on some of those factors. And I think most consumers do, actually. Now, the challenge that we have at the moment is that there is no underlying law that says you need to publish your results in ESG topics. There are some countries who are starting to look at reporting mechanisms. There are some countries who have some basic reporting mechanisms around human rights and and modern-day slavery. There are some countries that are thinking about requiring a certain reporting when it comes to the financial statements, so the impact that the ESG issue has on their accounts and to the extent to which that should be disclosed. So there is a movement globally to increase the reporting element, but that's going to take some time. And unfortunately, it's also going to be quite complex because it is going to be across multiple countries, and as you might expect, not all those countries are communicating with each other, and they're not consistent. And so, unfortunately, for a global company, it is going to be a myriad of reporting obligations. So, there will come a time when a lot of these issues will be required to be disclosed. Up until that time, it's really up to the company. It's up to the company whether they disclose certain topics or not. Certainly, from my viewpoint, there is an increasing trend on companies to be more transparent and to release more information about some of their ESG and about some of their efforts. And I think that should be the basic standpoint for most companies. And I think they should look to be more transparent and look to share more information. But I also recognize that Companies don't have the data on this. They don't know what to share, to be honest, because there is no standards on what they should share. There's no legal requirement on what they should share. And it's unclear sometimes how mature their programs are. So they may not be in a position to publish information because they just don't know what that information is. You know, they haven't got there yet. They're not there yet in being able to produce something that's credible enough. And unfortunately, in the last few years, we've seen situations where companies have made that rush to disclose information. And it's been pretty average. It's been information which has been poorly put together and information which has been picked apart by analysts and by members of the public. And the company's been challenged on some of its positions or it's been challenged on what has colloquially been now been called greenwashing where you know, you're being called to account for what you publish on this stuff. And so there are some companies who have definitely felt a pushback on some of the things that they've pushed, they pushed into the market because they've been seen to be telling a story which is you know, not necessarily the accurate position. It might be a very positive perspective on reality. So there is a balance that companies are going to have to, to get to before it's mandatory. 
And that is going to be an art form, frankly. That is going to be for the company and its management team and its lawyers to decide what can it share, what should it share, what information do the customers and other stakeholders demand or expect that they share, and do they have the data to share in the first place? I mean, have they got the programs in place that allow them to share useful information, or is it just too early? You know, they don't know the data. They don't know where they're at. And my observation is that in probably 90 to 95% of cases, companies are not there yet. This stuff is so new that they're just not ready to publish. They're not, they don't have the data. They don't have the story. They don't have the programs. They don't have the six, 12, 18 months, two years, five years worth of data in order to build trend analysis. They're just not there yet. But unfortunately for them, the consumer is demanding it. You know, the consumer is saying, we expect to know more and more information and we expect you to tell it to us. And so the message to companies is don't wait until a regulator tells you to do something. Your stakeholders expect you to tell the public information about these issues because it's important and you should be doing it. And companies are going to be challenged to have that data and have that perspective to be able to do that in a time frame that makes sense and in a way that can be absorbed by the public that isn't you know, a bunch of data that makes no sense to people, but is actually a thoughtful, structured communication that people can read, understand, and then make a decision. Is that positive or negative to them? And is that some, a company that they wish to deal with going forward? What I'm hearing, Scott, uh, is that there are two areas here for leaders to think about. One is obviously you've mentioned the sort of mandatory changes and practice, the regulation and compliance aspect, procedures that will be enforced by regulatory bodies, governments in different jurisdictions. Those are coming in. I mean, we've already seen them with you know financial regulations and obviously you've got accounting procedures at the very basic level. So we're used to these kind of practices in different countries. That's going to become more commonplace in coming years and it's going to be different according to different markets. That's one But then what you talk about is the push from all these different stakeholders, consumers, employees, investors, suppliers, who, to use your words, saying, don't wait for these mandatory regulations. Let's do something now because we're going to exercise choice. And that can mean choosing between A and B. I'm going to go with the one that has the best ESG performance. Now, that means being preemptive. It means being proactive, and you mentioned 90-95% of companies aren't even there yet because maybe it's data, but there's a big aspect of that which is cultural, isn't it, and behavioral change because being transparent and disclosing information about your company to the market is not the default practice of a company or hasn't been for generations, and that's changing. So that's going to require a different mindset, and change is hard. So my question is, is where does all of this start? Obviously, we can start with defining ESG, which we've talked about with the 19 areas. But now I'm thinking, what are those small steps? I don't want to make this easily attainable for my team. That I'm not going to scare them away that there's going to be huge cultural change. Give me the small bite-sized version of it that we can achieve quick wins here. Well, I think the first thing is 
it really comes down to the leaders. You know, leadership of an organization is now far more complex than what it was 10 to 15 years ago, where we were thinking about investors and we're thinking about how to placate an investor or investor group or, you know, potential investors that were looking to to invest in the company. There was a lot of focus on the investor side. And I think what's changed is leaders are now having to deal with a lot more issues, you know, issues which are really complex, issues around globalization and issues around political and economic issues, which are far more pronounced now than they were previously. And we've got some macroeconomic issues happening right now. We've got some people issues happening right now. We've got some uncertainty in the financial markets. We've got uncertainty in respect to sort of the way governments operate. We've seen, you know, a change in the way that people view governments and they view companies. You know, we've seen this movement of cancel culture and people voting and, you know, moving to change the way people buy products by using social media to not only challenge people why they're buying a particular company's product, but frankly, to, in some cases, to push that company out of business. So leaders are now having to really think through a lot of issues that they probably did not have to deal with 15 to 20 years ago. And so it's going to take a different type of leader who can do that. So the first thing I would challenge is, do we have the right leaders that are thinking about these issues and are they attuned to those issues? The second thing I'd say is, has that leader articulated the issue down to their management team? And have they got their management team on board with what their view is around these new leadership changes and dilemmas? We're going to need a new set of leaders and managers to run businesses going forward. The old days are gone and new leaders need to have different sets of skills. It's going to be a set of skills that is going to challenge them in not thinking about financial performance, but thinking about all of those other areas of performance, many of which form ESG. You know, they fall into that category of ESG. So thinking about how the company performs around risks or transparency or how it handles issues around society or data protection or employee rights or employee bully or diversity or, you know, there's a lot of issues now. So the first thing I'd say is we need leaders that understand it, the new paradigm that's required of them. They need to be articulated that in their management team. And then they need to invest. They need to invest in the people, the resources, the systems, the tools, the methodologies in building and maintaining these programs across the relevant areas that are suitable for them and their business. And it will require investment. It will require time. It will require them to think and really challenge themselves about how to move or change a culture, how to change behaviors in their company, how to change practices, how to get organization and people from around different countries to adapt to a new way of thinking across multiple areas on the ESG spectrum. There are a lot of skills there that companies do have right now. They're good at change management. There are companies that are dealing with this right now. We've just had a massive period of, of the pandemic that has caused companies to change. So the, the answer is they can change. They can do it extremely well. 
Most companies adapted to this massive change of the pandemic very, very well and very quickly. They need to do the same thing for ESG. They need to do the same thing with a number of those risk areas in ESG because time is ticking for them to really step up and take control of it. Not only on the E side, which is fairly obvious when it comes to climate, but on the S and the G side as well. So the message to companies is, number one, it's all about leadership. And number two, it's all about execution. I'm hoping this podcast can shine a spotlight on some of those leaders and how they're making change. Because often the best way to make change is to showcase an example, isn't it? A role model of what people did in different situations. That can be a lot more powerful than, obviously, we need to have the bullet points and the plan. But when I see somebody doing something and I relate to that person or I see them as aspirational, then internally I'll make that change and that will then affect all those aspects that you mentioned within the organization. So purpose of the podcast really is to give a voice to the people who are making change. Let's hear those voices, as it says on the podcast title itself. And we started off today, Scott, with some quite strong hammer blow pieces of news. There was the heat apocalypse, which is impacting Europe and obviously being from the other part of the world as well. You've seen it impact Australia in recent years. And, you know, that's climate change right in front of our face, no denying it. But that's just one aspect of it. Um, We looked at, for example, the Mondelez Modern Day Slavery report that was published. And just interesting to know that that kind of transparency is out there now. And these companies are doing things. They're making the right moves. Whatever the, the motivations are, obviously, that's something else to discuss. But that is out there. And this is the requirement and expectation of large global brands today. And obviously, we've seen the case with Uber as well, with whistleblowers and corruption there that those companies that were high-flying brands in the world of tech startups are not infallible. There are cultural issues there that are unraveling and we're getting an insight into them. It's easy to kind of feel a little bit overwhelmed with all of this. So, you know, I'm curious from your perspective on a personal level, what are you hopeful about when we do this series and when you talk to those change makers and those leaders and those case studies? What are you hopeful to hear It's an interesting topic because when you consider ESG, there is no published book. You know, there isn't a education course. There's no significant part of an MBA that walks potential new leaders through this. There is no rule book, unfortunately. And I don't think there will be for a very long time. So what we're reliant on is experience and pulling together people that have experience either doing it or experience in adjacent areas and using that set of experiences and those skills to apply to this ESG area. And I think that's where there's a large amount of experience and knowledge around, particularly around governance and compliance, you know, helping companies comply with issues and helping them comply with new issues and helping them embed compliance into the organization and changing cultures and changing behaviors and putting in place controls and systems and tools. And they're the things actually which have been happening, you know, in the world of compliance for years and years and years. I mean, that's been a very consistent application of what, you know, frankly, compliance officers and people working in that area do. 
So part of what we think is going to be necessary is using those skills, using the skills that most companies have got in the form of compliance and, and adoption of, of new practices and putting in place systems and tools and applying that to this area uh, because there is no rule book and so we're going to have to adjust those practices as we go along. And the best way that we can do that is by leveraging the experience and knowledge of people that have done it and some of those new thought leaders that, you know, like the Mondelez example, who are willing to invest and willing to build a system and then are willing to share it and talk about it and be transparent about it. And that transparency drives other people to see what is happening. It drives other people to say, well, how are we doing in this space? And that may be competitors, but it may be people in adjacent industries. It may be other members of the stock exchange, or it may be other people who have got like industries and like products. So that groundswell of support will make a... Excellent. Scott, well, I've really enjoyed and learned from today's walk through the world of ESG. And for those that are listening, piece of advice, obviously, go and subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple. We'll share all the details in the show notes. If you want to understand about the 19 risk areas, details coming up in upcoming episodes of the podcast, as well as details that you can get directly from Scott and his team. If you want to understand more about the experience and knowledge of those people who have done it and the stories, we will showcase those in future episodes. Scott, in rounding up, to the listeners, one piece of advice, That's something that they can action Monday morning to make a positive step forward. I think the one piece of advice would be that having an organization that is respecting the environment, respecting the society in which it operates, and has a system of governance which is respectful to its people and its other stakeholders is kind of a baseline. And so what I've described is really E, S, and G. It's a baseline for companies. And so whether we used to call it ESG or whether we will call it ESG, those pieces are a baseline that any organization needs to have. So it's really up to the organization to build it and to start somewhere. Because my final piece of advice would be, years ago, if something went wrong in a company, you had a pretty good ability to hide it, manage it, not discuss it, not publish it, and frankly, fix the issue and move on. And no one really needed to know much about it. Those days have gone. The days of social media and the days of whistleblowing and the days of hearing all voices means that people do have a voice and they're going to execute that voice. They're going to use that voice. They're going to talk about these issues and they're going to do it publicly. So as a company, you've really got two choices. You can bury your head in the sand and hope that it never happens to you, which I don't recommend. Or alternatively, you can challenge yourself to look at these issues and to get ahead of it and to do what you should have been doing, which is building an environment where your employees, your partners, your suppliers, and your investors can profit from the work that you're doing. And they will get the value out of the efforts that you put in as an organization to improve the way you manage environmental risks, the social risks, and the way in which you govern your business. So my message would be, 
it sounds scary, but it's broken up into small pieces. And we will try and drive people to give them as much experience and as much knowledge and as much direction and good tips and share as much as we possibly can to help people along that journey. Thank you for listening to the Hear All Voices podcast by Speaky with me, Scott Lane. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to hear more, subscribe to our channel on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We will be back with a brand new episode in a few weeks. Oh,